Welcome to Gateway Church's Sermon of the Week, where our goal is to equip the believer to do the works of the ministry. This week, we have a special guest speaker. His name is Eugene Bach. He works with Back to Jerusalem. This ministry's goal is to get the gospel to the Middle East and Asian countries through the underground Chinese church. He also hosts the podcast, Back to Jerusalem Podcasts, and we have him here today at Gateway. So we hope you enjoy this message this morning by Eugene Bach. Thank you, Pastor Chris. We had such a good time yesterday, but I, I do have to tell you, and or I guess warn you that anybody that got one of these flyers, there might be something on there that might be a little bit untrue this morning. It says... Uh, the service, the Sunday service at Gateway Church usually lasts about 90 minutes. So I have worked on this message all day yesterday and today, and I could only squeeze it into about four hours. But I promise I will speak for only 30 minutes and make it feel like it's only four hours. But if you don't mind, if I if I bleed over for like five minutes, is that all right? And would you mind, ma'am, if I bleed over like five minutes? Five minutes? Todd, are you okay if I do five minutes? Okay, so that's five, 10, 15. So I got 15 extra minutes that I can go this morning. Uh, my name is uh, Eugene Bach. I've been working together with the Underground House Church for a little over 20 years. And uh, I've been living in China together with my family. And they have something that's taking place that I want to share with you. I did share a lot with you guys last time I was here. And I ended up sharing more than I thought I was going to share last time I was here. I think I preached about a 40-minute sermon last time I was here. And then after it was over, I was held hostage at the book table for another 40 minutes. And no joke, at some point I ended up in this back room with the lights out with half the people from the church. So it was, it was a very, I'm, I'm hoping that it doesn't end up that way to, today where I'm not going, coming out of the closet, but being pushed back into the closet. But in the time that I have been in China, I want to share with you guys some good news in case you don't know. Today in China, we are seeing the world's largest revival. We are seeing at least 28,000 to 30,000 people come to Christ every single day. One of the amazing things that we're seeing out of that revival is the Chinese have a vision to reach the unreached people groups between China and Jerusalem. And it is a vision that they call the Back to Jerusalem vision. And that's what I work together with them on. This vision of Back to Jerusalem isn't just leaving China and traveling directly to Jerusalem. Instead, the vision is out of these revivals that are taking place inside of China, the Chinese are sending out missionaries to all of the nations, all of the villages, going from person to person, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and completing the Great Commission. This area between China and Jerusalem is what we like to call the final frontier of missions. And I know that this church is probably a little bit more familiar with Back to Jerusalem than other churches. So what I would like to do this morning is just take a little bit of time and share with you what I believe God has as a message for China that can also be a message for America. 
You know, oftentimes when missionaries come and speak, it has a feeling that, like, it's almost like somebody from a, from a diet group that gets up and speaks. Like, you listen to them share about the foods that you should be eating, and you're like, I know I should be eating those foods, but I'm not. Uh, when people come up and they talk about prayer, you're like, I know I should be praying more, but I'm not. When somebody comes up and they talk about missions, you're thinking, you know, I should be more involved in missions, but I'm not. That's not this kind of message this morning. <laughs> this morning, I know that a lot of people, when they hear about missions, they think that, well, what they're going to share is how poor people in another country really need Jesus and how we can partner with them to take Jesus to this people group. This morning, I promise that I'm going to be sharing with you how you can benefit from what the Chinese church has experienced. I promise that at least from my side, I will not be trying to sell you anything. I will not be trying to raise any funds. I want to share with you a message to the American church from the church in China. I know that a lot of people might think that, you know, if you come to America, you're going to be telling us about the poor people in China. You're going to show me a PowerPoint presentation of poor children and that the people that I should feel sorry for in China. The only person that you need to feel sorry for, the only person poor that you might be looking at this morning is myself. Instead, I'm bringing a message from China to what I can see is the poor church in America. The largest revival that is taking place today is taking place inside of China. And there, are, there is a message that I believe that the American church can learn from the Chinese. I'm pretty positive of it because I grew up in the American church. I'm a Hoosier by birth. I grew up just north of here. Most people have never heard of a little small town in northern Indiana called Montpelier, Indiana. I know that there's one person here who knows of Montpelier, Indiana. A few people. Wow, really? We have like one street light and it blinks. I didn't even live in Montpelier. That was the closest town. Where, I mean, the area that I lived in, we had like 100 people if you count the pregnant women twice. There was, that, Montpelier was like going to the big city. I grew up here in Indiana as a fellow Hoosier. When I first traveled to China almost 23 years ago, and started serving the underground house church in China, I was confident that I had a lot of things to share with the church. And I had a grand visions on how I was going to help them because that poor church in China needed my help. When I arrived in China, I found a revival that was taking place. And I was confused. I was confused because I thought, how is a revival taking place and they haven't even met me yet? I got so many messages to share. I got so many ways to enlighten your life, to bring in the Holy Spirit, and yet it seems like you already have it. And as I began to witness the church in China, I became, I became a little confused. I found some of their practices profound and confusing in the way that I couldn't relate to them. Culturally, they looked different. Linguistically, they sounded different. But it wasn't that that confused me. What confused me was the way that they followed Christ was not the way that I learned to follow Christ here in America. 
So, so as I share, I, I want to share a little bit in a message that I want to call render to Caesars what is Caesars and render to God what is God's. The reason I want to share this is because yesterday I was here and I was listening a little bit and I have spent the weekend with Pastor Chris, had an amazing time, and as we were talking, our spirits connected. And he began to share with me some of the things that are taking place here in this church as you guys begin to make a difference in your community. And so what I'm going to share with you today is something that I believe you can learn from that will not necessarily add to what Pastor Chris has taught in the past, but it can be a perspective from the Chinese church that you might be able to benefit from. How many here believe that we can learn something from individuals that lived about 5,000 years ago in the Bible. So you believe that even though we have this ancient book that's, you know, several thousand years old, the people in that book lived lives that can teach us with all of the things that we have, all of the technology that we have, all of the advancements that we've made, you still believe that we can learn from those individuals that were several th that lived several thousand years ago do you believe that we can learn from those that served god several thousand years ago what about those in the bible that did not serve god are we able to learn from them even though they lived several thousand years ago so if we are able to learn from those that served god and those that didn't serve god from 5,000, 4,000, 3,000, 2,000 years ago, do you think it's possible to learn from those that lived 100 years ago that served God? Is it possible to learn from those 100 years ago that didn't serve God? I believe it is. At my heart, I'm a historian. Anybody that knows anything about me knows that I've probably written more about the underground house church inside of China today, as well as those that have led it, than almost anybody else alive today. I spend a lot of my time working together with people that I consider to be heroes of the faith and writing their stories so that those stories can be given to the next generation. And uh, to, to other people, even though they may not live in the day and age of these, what I believe, great saints of today. So if I can, I want for us to please turn to the book of Mark. I'm not going to spend too much time, but I want to share from the book of Mark this um, passage that I think in Western Christianity is greatly misunderstood. The book of Mark chapter 12 is the area that I'm going to be asking that we look at today. My background, for those of you that don't know, I was in the U.S. military. Um, my background is uh, I was a scout sniper in the Marine Corps. I did two tours in the Persian Gulf. I'm super proud of my youngest son who's with me today. He is enlisting into the Air Force. My oldest son will be graduating college in a couple of months. He's going directly into officer training school for the Marine Corps. So uh, we have this, we have almost a little bit of this feeling in our family that we want to serve. My background being in the Marine Corps, I was asked at one time if I wanted to be a part of a group that is called uh, the Light Armored Reconnaissance Group. Has, has anybody here ever heard of LARs? Okay, so one, 
a couple people have heard of LARs. I'd never heard of LARs. When I first joined the Marine Corps, I'd never heard of this light armored reconnaissance group. And my first time witnessing them, I can remember very well being on a mountain in Camp Pendleton and watching these, these they're almost like tanks, but they have tires instead of tracks. And they go driving into this op four group. This is what we call the opposition force. And before you are able to be shipped overseas, you have to go through certain evaluations to make sure that your unit is prepared to go overseas. So in this evaluation, I watched for the very first time from a hill where I was able to observe and record back for headquarters what was taking place. And what I saw was these light armored reconnaissance tanks going into this enemy controlled area and this was a part of the training and as the enemy began to open fire on these tanks I saw those tanks immediately drive as fast as they could through the enemy territory and get back to headquarters where there was protection and as a marine I thought to myself that's the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do they retreated at the first sight of the enemy they pulled back as soon as the enemy began to fire upon them. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. Until I began to talk with one of the young Marines that was a part of LAR. And then he enlightened me, informed me that that was their job. Their job was to drive into enemy territory and convince the enemy to begin firing upon them so that they could locate the different enemy positions and tell the, us back in the rear exactly who was there, what weapon systems they had, how they were engaging them, and how they were using their tactics from their hidden positions to engage us when we come in. We had a ton of information from these groups that whole job was to get fired upon by the enemy. I have been fired upon by the enemy. And I'm coming here to tell you what the enemy looks like, what his weapons are, where he's hiding, how he hides, and how he will attack you. As we look at this part of the Bible, uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. In Mark chapter 12, verse 13, I want to read this very well-known passage of Scripture. It says this. My Bible might read a little bit different than yours. But later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the ways of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right then to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Now this is a very well-known passage of Scripture that many of you have read time and time again. We often hear it in reference to politics. We often hear this 
passage of Scripture shared even with the very well-known Scripture in Romans chapter 13. This idea of what our role is as Christians for the government. There's one area that I would like to share with you. The very first thing that I would like to share from this passage. During, uh, during this time, I will be looking at three different parts of this passage. But the first area that I want to look at is something that we see quite often inside of China. You see that, that it's very easy to walk away from this verse and, and see that when the Pharisees questioned Jesus, they were wrong. They were wrong by questioning Jesus. The Chinese can agree with that idea. They also believe that it's wrong to question authority. You see, one of the things that the Chinese had taught me while working together with them is sometimes there is a need to question. In fact, I'm going to say something that many of you may not necessarily agree with right away, but please hear me out. Jesus wants us to ask him questions. Jesus want, wants us to seek after him and ask why. Because he knows everything, and I know next to nothing. How can I learn? By asking him. We see in the scripture many times that Jesus, when people question him or give him questions, he treats them with love, mercy, grace, patience, and answers their questions. You know, we, 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 are, we are compelled by God's word with the words of this. Seek me, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Ask, and you will receive. I believe that Jesus wants to be chased by us. He, he wants us to ask questions. I think that from God's word, when I read through all of the people that had questions for God, he showed us that our heroes are the ones that would be, they're ones that would rather have answers, or he would rather have questions that don't have answers than have questions that can't be, uh, I'm sorry, would rather have questions that can't be answered than to have answers that cannot be questioned. It is important for us to question, because that is how we learn. You know, I wrote a Bible study that's called Chasing Revival. It is a Bible study probably unlike any that's out there on the market today for one simple reason. We wanted to ask questions that we didn't agree with. We came up with answers that we didn't agree with. Our vision when we wrote this Bible study, which is to follow the history of revival from Jerusalem all the way around the world to where we are at today, as we wrote this Bible study, we said, let's write a Bible study that will cause a fist fight in somebody's home. Because I'm tired of cotton candy Bible studies that ask complicated questions and then give us these simple answers and we're like, oh yeah, God is good and everybody agrees. That's how I know we haven't arrived at the answer because everybody agrees. And disagreement doesn't mean that we don't like each other. Disagreement means we are looking to get to the core of the question, to find the answer. And when we look at the questions, 
here, we see that Jesus gets upset. So if it's okay to question God or ask questions of Jesus, then why is it he is upset in this section? Because of the motive. Jesus said very clearly, he's, or the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus saw their motives. He understood. They weren't asking a question to gain knowledge. They were asking a question to entrap. We often do that as Christians. We may not necessarily be wanting to entrap, but we are wanting to win an argument. How many arguments have you won that you were actually wrong on? There are so many people in the world that are better at arguing than seeking the truth. Would you rather find the truth and be wrong or have a lie and win your argument? I believe that the word of the Lord is a double-edged sword that cuts both ways. And we, as followers, have to allow that sword to cut us. We have to submit ourselves to the Word of God and allow it to slice right through us. Allow it to offend us. Allow it to offend our beliefs. Allow it to attack our religion. When we look at what Jesus is doing with the, with the, the Pharisees, he is upset because the Pharisees are doing something that we often do. Sometimes, maybe you are not guilty of this, I am. I read the Bible not to see what the Bible says, but to see what the Bible says to confirm my bias. I have a subject. I have a topic. I have an opinion. And now I need to find the scripture to back it up. There is a, there's a, 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 a kind of a dialogue that takes place. There's a, a man who reached his 110th birthday. And a reporter comes up to him amazed. This is a man that has reached his 110th birthday. So the reporter asks the man on his birthday, how in the world did you live to be 110? What's the secret to your health? He said, easy. I learned to be agreeable with people. And they said, that can't be the only thing. That sounds insane. Surely you had a diet. Surely you did exercise. Surely you had yoga or a breathing exercise or something like that. And the 110-year-old man said, you're right, and walked away. Sometimes we are looking for something in the Bible to confirm our bias so that we can feel more righteous. Not because we are more righteous, but because now we have God on our side instead of us being on the side of God. So, when we look at what's happening inside of China, we see that we are not allowed to question authority. And Christians should know this more than anything because this is right and you don't question righteousness. Here's the thing. We as Christians, I believe, are taught to search for truth. Do you know what the oldest, the arguably, the oldest book in the Bible is? The book of Job. The book of Job is arguably, it's not, so the, the Bible is not necessarily put into order as far as a timeline goes. Most people believe that Job is the oldest writings that we can find in today's Bible. And what I love about the book of Job is that Job is asking 
questions of God that he doesn't understand. And guess what? In those questions, he finds answers. And in those answers, he knows more about God. And there's nothing more joyful than discovering something you didn't know about God. Learning something new about God is one of the most exciting. Have you ever been reading the Bible and you come across something you've never seen before, even though you've read it before, and you read it and you're like, oh my gosh, look at this. This, ah, you can't even explain it. It just comes out. I heard a pastor say this, nothing sounds more boring than the angels that are supposed to be in front of God and 24-7 saying, holy, holy, holy. I heard the man say, I don't want that job. But then he said, when I began to understand something that might be a part of that, what if those angels discovered something new about God? And when they discovered that, they bow down and they're like, oh, oh, holy, holy, holy. And on their way back up, they discover something new. God reveals something new to them. And they're again, they're just like, holy, holy, holy. They can't do anything because as they come back up, it's an eternity of learning something new. We have been lied to in a way that we believe that when we get to heaven, we will know it all. I promise you, you will not know it all. It will be an eternity of discovering something new about the Savior that we serve. And every time, we might find ourselves unwillingly, unwittingly standing beside those angels singing, holy, 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 learning something new. When I see the word of God say that I am the way, I am the truth, this means that Jesus doesn't just say the truth. This is the embodiment of the truth. This means that he is the truth. Do you know what that means? That means the closer we are to God, the closer we are to the truth. The further we are away from God, or the further we push him away from our lives, the further we push him away from our families, the further we push him away from our country, the further away we are from the truth. The truth wants to be found. And it is our job as those that are madly, insanely in love with Christ to chase after him and to learn more about him. So I believe that if you walk away from this scripture believing that it is not good to ask questions of the Bible, it is not good to question the pastor. Sorry, pastor. It is not good to question authorities in high places. I would say you're missing the essence of the gospel. That one scripture will lead you astray if you do not understand the reason, the motive behind the questions that the Pharisees were asking. If we continue on, we see that It says, the Pharisees said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. That sounds nice. You aren't swayed by others. Oh, that's cute. It's very easy to be flattered. 
we see that the enemy, as they try to entrap Jesus, they use words that are true. They use questions that sound honest. They use words that sound flattery, flattering. One of the things that we notice inside of China is this. This is a truth that I want to bring to you. That we have witnessed inside of China, it lines up directly with this story, that there has never been a tyrant that has taken power, that comes to power by telling you he wants to be a tyrant. They always promise really good things, and they talk really well about those that they want to support their rise to power. One of the things that we notice with the enemy himself is that he always uses truth to tell you a lie. Lies are best wrapped in truth. We see that when the enemy went to Eve and began to share with Eve, he used the truth. When uh, Jesus was tempted by the enemy, the enemy tempted him by using the truth. One of the things that we have to be very careful of as believers, and this is why we need to question, is because sometimes those that are trying to win your support and giving you very flattering words and are painting beautiful pictures for you are not necessarily those that have your best interests at heart. And it is important for us to realize that truth is only found in the truth, capital T. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? That means that you cannot have truth without having God. And anybody that tries to sell you truth without God is trying to sell you something that will cause you damnation. Inside of China, we have seen something that I think is really interesting. The Chinese government has come to the Christians and said, you know what? We want to help you get Bibles. Whenever somebody that you know has a track record that's not very good for Christians, says they want to do something to help Christians, you should at least be a little cautious. So they said, we're going to help you Christians by translating the Bible into your language. We already have the Bible in Chinese, but the Chinese government wants to help us make it better. That's a five-year project. We don't have the end result of that project, but I do have a passage of Scripture that has already been done by the Chinese government. Would you like to hear it? See if you recognize this story at all. The crowd wanted to stone the woman to death as per their law, but Jesus said, let no one who has ever sinned throw the first stone. Have you ever heard this story before? Okay, so it is from the Bible, right? <clears throat> Hearing this, they slipped away one by one. When the crowd disappeared, Jesus stoned the sinner to death, saying, I too am a sinner, but if the law could only be executed by men without blemish, the law would be dead. Does that sound like the same? You see, when you reject God, it is impossible to find truth without him. There will be rationale, there will be ideas, but here's, here's the thing about God. Not only does it say that God is the truth, you know what the Bible also tells us? That God is the word, logos. Logos is the root word for logic. 
I think you guys can identify with this with the word Bible, right? The name Bible, like all these different words and names. We see that John chapter 1 verse 1 says what? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you want to know what the number one thing is that the enemy does whenever he takes over an area? Every time. First thing. And guys, I, I spend a lot of my time in Hindu nations, Muslim nations, uh, atheist nations, uh, and Buddhist nations. And every time I see the enemy take over a new area, the very first step that all of them do is stop free speech. Always. Why? Because we are told that that's how the end comes. Matthew 24, 14 tells us that when all of the nations have heard the good news, then the end will come. How do we stop them from hearing? By stopping it from being said. You see, the truth will always triumph over a lie. Why? Because God is the truth. So if you are hearing lies, the answer to a lie is more speech, not less. Because the more speech is you have a greater chance of getting the truth. And once the truth is introduced into the room, the lie dissipates. The truth will always conquer a lie, and a lie will never conquer the truth. The, the, the way you stop the truth from being shared is not by sharing a lie. The way you stop the truth from being shared is silence. Silence is the enemy of the truth, not a lie. The truth is the enemy of a lie, the destruction of a lie. So when, when I see this with the Chinese, one of the things that I, I see with the history of China is this selling of good ideas absent from God. And they're trying to achieve things that the Bible promises us without the promise keeper. So let me just name some things that we have dealt with in China for over 60, 70 years. And you tell me if any of this sounds familiar. When Mao Zedong came to power in 1949, he raised up with his people an idea that he sold to the nation to hand him over all authority. He promised three things. The first thing that he promised was equality. We need equality. The 1% is running this entire nation. They have all the wealth. They are called the bourgeoisie. We are the ones that do all the work, yet we get nothing. We're the proletariat. The poor working man has been trotted down by the rich, the wealthy, the 1%. They control everything. I will bring equality. Christians heard this word. They heard this message, and they thought, sounds good. The Bible talks about equality. The Bible says that Jesus died for us all. That sounds like a good message. But Mao was not talking about bringing God into the equation. In fact, he pushed away God. The God that brings equality is the God that's being pushed away. Don't worry, Mao will be able to bring equality himself. Everybody will be wealthy in Mao's China. The second thing that he promised is social justice. You think this is a new word? We were, we were listening to this word more than 70 years ago. I say we as if I was living 70 years ago. But in China, we were listening to this idea of social justice. Did you know that we have more minorities in China than we have here in the United States? 
what we would call minorities. Inside of China, most people don't know this. They think of, when they think of Chinese, they think of one monolithic people. They all look the same. They all talk the same. Could not be further from the truth. China's land mass-wise is bigger than the United States. Population-wise, we're about five to ten times bigger than the United States. Depends on what numbers you use. But when you look at the Chinese people, the western part of China is as different from the eastern part of China as Italy is from Estonia, as Russia is from the UK, as Sweden is from Italy. Different language, different history, different culture, and different looks. Most people don't know this, but when you start getting into western China, you don't even realize you are in China anymore. The people don't look like your TV version of Bruce Lee Chinese. They start speaking different languages that you feel sounds more like Osama bin Laden. The individuals start looking more like Ross from Friends than they do Jackie Chan from Hong Kong. Some of you won't get the, that reference, and that's because you're good Christians, and I'm not. But as we, as we look at Mao's rise to power, he said, I will bring social justice the minorities have been persecuted for way too long. And now we need to bring them to an area where they have equality. Now keep in mind that both the things that Mao said was correct. He was correct in identifying a problem. The problem was there. And people that denied the problem fell victim to Mao as he told them the truth about the problem, only a lie about how to answer that problem. Then he said there was a gender gap. Women in China were not able to get jobs. They were forced to bind their feet. If you don't know what bound feet is, this is something that happens in China when Chinese girls were born. Immediately, their mothers would wrap their feet really tightly to where their toes would bend back, and then their bones would not be able to grow all the way up until adulthood. And so the women would walk on these small stubs if they were able to walk at all. Their entire life, their foot had to be wrapped because the moment that you unwrap that foot, the bones begin to stretch out and grow again. And it was considered to be attractive in Chinese culture to have women with no feet. And in fact, before you could get married, the, the women had to sit down in front of the mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law would pick up the dress and look at the feet. If the feet were not bound, she would walk out and refuse to allow the marriage to take place. It was considered to be a shame for the family, a shame for yourself, and a shame for your community. That you had to bind feet. There was also a, a certain rule that certain families had to give up their daughters to be a part of these massive harems of certain fiefdoms. So women were abused. And Mao capitalized on that and said, there is a gender gap that I want to close. I want to bridge. I will bring equality for the sexes. The words that we use today in today's society, in modern day 2022 America, is not very far away from 70 years ago with what we see with Mao Zedong. Let me go even further. Mao Zedong, came, when he came to power, he said that we need to defund the police. The police enforce a male patriarch society that has been in place that keep the proletariat down, the women down, and the minorities down. Let me read you a little section of, of history that I wrote for social media that got shared around the world tens of thousands of times. 
says this. The day the police were no longer needed. This day on August 19th, 1966, students launched a fight for social justice to fight for the rights of the oppressed in China. The patriarch system in China had been created by the 1% and held down women, minorities, and the working class. The students cried out for a revolution and change. They launched the cultural revolution. Students put a band around their arm to stand in solidarity with the oppressed, and they called for a change on the old ideas and a war on what they called the four olds. The four olds were old customs, old culture, old habits, and old ideas. The movement was supported by the Chinese media. Mass demonstration and looting by the students ensued. Statues were torn down. Chinese architecture was destroyed. Classical literature and Chinese paintings were torn apart and burned. Temples were desecrated. The cemetery of Confucius was attacked. The body of a 76th generation Duke Yanshang was removed from its grave and hung from a tree. Wealthy homes were attacked and destroyed. Many families' long-kept genealogy books were burned to ashes. Public leaders who were considered to be oppressive were tried by angry mobs and vigilantes. Three days later, August 22, 1966, a central directive was issued to stop police intervention. The police were disbanded in the city, and the students formed a community solution that they called the Red Guard. The Red Guards policed their own communities, and they punished anyone who did not agree with their ideas. Even people that supported the movement but had bad thoughts could be punished. Though many Christians supported the movement in the beginning, they quickly became the number one target of the Red Guards, and public trials were held to condemn them to death. Many of those who were on board with the cause of the rebellion in the beginning saw that it was not really what they signed up for, but by then, it was too late. The power of the Red Guard and what they wanted had already been given. More people died during the Cultural Revolution in China than any war, famine, or natural disaster in the history of man. Mao Zedong was able to come to power by using pretty words that everybody could agree on, everybody could jump on board with, but it excluded God. One of the things that we see in this scripture is that not everybody that flatters you, not everybody that takes your side of an argument, not everybody that seems to be on your side is on your side if your side is together with God. Lastly, let me share the part that I think is one of the more vocal, the part that is vocalized the most and probably the most misunderstood. Lastly, Jesus says something that if you see it at its core, it is absolutely genius. It says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto God that which is God's. This verse is usually used as an argument, a biblical argument, for the separation of church and state. This is also a, a verse that is often used in uh, cooperation with Romans chapter 13 to submit to earthly authorities. This is something that is a part of a mantra that is given over and over again. And one of the things that I just want to point out, because inside of China, this is one of the things that I came face to face with. 
when I arrived in a biblical believing fellowship and everything that we were doing, the Bible that we were reading was illegal. The praise and worship service that we were doing was illegal. The meeting together in these small apartments or in caves or in fields or in barns inside of China were illegal. So now I have to question my own interpretation of this scripture in Mark if I am to see what is taking place inside of China. And I'm like, how can I bring these two together? And it's very easy. I misunderstood. My interpretation of the scripture was wrong. Now, I could have held on to my interpretation and condemned the Chinese. They wouldn't have cared. Send that white guy back to America. It's not going to bother us. But I began to witness and listen and watch and learn from the Chinese. Let me ask this question. What, was there anything there that had the image of Caesar on it? In this story, the coin. The coin had the image of Caesar. Was there anything in this story that had the image of God on it? Everyone in that story. Jesus had the image of God. The people in this story had the image of God. Because we are told from the very beginning that we are made in the image of God. The government can put their stamp on silver and gold. The government can own the silver and gold, but God has put his stamp on you. You are owned by God. You were born in America. I was born in America, but I am not owned by America. I know that might offend somebody. I know that it may sound like I'm anti-American. I just told you, my family is a military-serving family. I love this nation, but I don't find salvation in this nation. And the moment that this nation turns away from God, they turn away from me because I'm made in his image. When we see the Chinese church rising up with the revivals that I just told you about, those revivals are not taking place in a country that allows them to meet. If you read the Chinese constitution, there's nowhere that gives them the right to say that we are allowed to follow after God. They will pay their taxes. They will listen to the government. They will not lie, steal, steal cheat. They will do what the government asks them. But the moment the government asks them to turn their back on God, you no longer have ownership of this property because I have been stamped in the image of the one that I follow. And I don't get my freedoms from the Constitution. I love the Constitution, but I also love the men's wisdom that God gave those that sought after him to write the beginning words of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths. You can't tell me what's truth. I know him. It's not an it. It is a he. It is, it, it is a who, not an it. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I don't need a constitution to tell me that we're equal. Even if it's absence, I still have it because it's in God's word. That we have life, liberty. <laughs> I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I have life. 
I don't get it from the government. Life, liberty, where the Spirit of the Lord is. <laughs> where the Spirit of the Lord is. If we are together giving him praise and he comes in our midst, we have liberty. I don't care what the government says. I don't care what the Constitution says. I've been together with the Chinese in a communist country, and we have had freedom. Freedom that only God can give. Chain me up. Put me in prison. Put me to death. But you cannot shut me up. You cannot stop this God because I have freedom. Freedom that goes beyond your dominion. Freedom that goes beyond your control. This is the freedom that only God can give. And I will tell you something right now. It is not America that gives Christians their freedom. It is Christians that gave birth to America. And the moment we forget that, the moment we lose that. In China, it is not embraced even a little bit that we need to have the government on our side in order to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. I got news for you. Your persecution in this country is probably going to get worse. I've got news for you. If you think that you are being oppressed now, the oppression is only going to increase. The enemy's Days are numbered, and the more that they are numbered, the more desperate he becomes. And the more desperate he becomes, the more radical he gets. The more radical he gets, the more violence he will show to you as a follower of Christ. And in the midst of that, you can have revival. We are seeing revival in North Korea. We are seeing revival in China. We are seeing revival in Iran. None of those countries allow for it. Let me just start to wrap this down a little bit. Forgive me if I got a little bit too excited. <clears throat> Most of us sat and watched our TV as we saw the sadness that took place in Afghanistan. And many of us cried or questioned, especially those of us that had lost family members or dear friends or fellow colleagues that we worked together with, if they lost their life in Afghanistan, many of us saw and we thought, what was the purpose if we handed it over to the Taliban? The bad news with that situation is that Afghanistan was lost long before the rise of the Taliban. You see, something took place that not many people here in America paid much attention to. Happened in 2009. In 2009, there was this directive that came from the top down to the soldiers that were on the field, and it was to tell all of the soldiers that now you have a new mission. And your mission is this, to become a community activist, to go in and win the hearts and the minds of the people. You are going to start building schools and roads, handing out candy and talking to children, trying to build community relations and get the local trust and see you not as an invader, but as a friend. When this started to happen, many Afghans saw the American soldiers and they thought, what is it about these guys that is different? They invaded and yet they are different than the Taliban, the ones they overthrew. Some of them were even brave enough to approach a few soldiers and say, is there a way 
that you can share with us about your God? Is there a way we can get our hands on information about your God? And so they began to ask for Bibles. And the soldiers, who didn't really know too much about what to do, began contacting their churches back here in America, saying, would it be possible for you to send Bibles? We got people in Afghanistan begging for Bibles. So churches, excited, began to send Bibles to Afghanistan. When the top leadership in Afghanistan heard about soldiers getting these Bibles, they began to collect all of them. Thousands of them. And in 2009, if you don't believe me, you can look this up on Wikipedia. They collected thousands of Bibles, put them on the tarmac at Bagram Base, and set them on fire. The very thing that we needed to give the Afghans freedom was burning on the tarmac. We were able to bring into democracy, but a democracy did not give them freedom. We rewrote their constitution. The constitution could not give them freedom. We began to give uh, education to everybody, whether you were male or female, no matter what your minority group or tribe was, we began to educate them. We did everything that we could. We flew in the world's best military to provide security. We flew in the world's best consultants to give them advice on how to start a free society. We brought in businesses so that we could get their market economy back up and going. We had all of the ingredients that we mixed into a pot to give the Afghans freedom, but we missed the one most important ingredient, God. We denied him from being in Afghanistan. When they, so that I won't get this wrong, I'm going to try to see if I can read from Lieutenant Colonel Wright. When they asked him, why, would, why in the world would you burn Bibles? you would never do that to a Quran. Can you imagine the outrage that would have happened if Qurans had been piled up by the thousands and burned? But they did it to the Bible, and this is why. Lieutenant Colonel Wright explained to CNN that the troops at post in war zones are required to, quote, burn their trash. So why not just collect the Bibles? It was asked of this, this colonel. Why not just collect the Bibles and send them back to the churches that sent them? And he admitted in an interview they had considered doing that, but, quote, the churches would only send them back to another organization in Afghanistan. It wasn't just they didn't want the soldiers handing out Bibles. They didn't want the Bibles to be in Afghanistan. And their chance at freedom the very element, the cornerstone, the foundation of freedom was taken away. I know this personally. Why? Because I work in Afghanistan together with our Chinese friends. And in Afghanistan, long before the Taliban took over, we get a phone call from our, one of our team members. And they said, hey, Eugene, we've been preaching in a village, and the government has now gotten information that we have planted a church there, so they have set up roadblocks with police units around the village to check all of our electronics. This government that was oppressing, targeting, attacking Christians was the very same government supported by us and their taxpayer money. Supported by the European Union, supported by the EU, supported by the UN. This government 
was persecuting Christians. And they said, can you help us find a way to get Bibles into this village? Well, it just so happens that we've been a part of a rebellious movement for quite a while. We joined the ranks of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We have joined the ranks of the disciples. And we have put together a small little rebellious group that we meet once a year. It's called a hackers conference, where we bring hackers from around the world that are believers that work for major agencies like um, Facebook and Google, also working for CIA and the uh, governments, not just the U.S. government, but other governments around the world. We bring in people. We even got volunteers from NASA, believers that come in to our group, and then we find ways of getting God's word in behind enemy lines. Now, because this is on video, I cannot share what black trumpet is, but we found a way to get the Bible into people's homes in Afghanistan. And when the Taliban took over, they began to look for those Bibles, and they didn't find them. And I can show you why at the end of this service, once the cameras are off. If once the cameras are off, I, I, I'll, I'll show everybody if you, if, if you guys would like that. So, um, <laughs> I, I, let me keep going because there's really important stuff that I want to share with people that are watching by camera. Every word that comes out of my mouth is very important, and I want to make sure that you guys hear it. <laughs> I'm being facetious. That's so wrong. Uh, <clears throat> but as we look... At God's word moving into places like Afghanistan, into places like Iran, it is important for us to know that it is not by, sm by how smart we are. It is not by how mighty we are. It is not by how powerful we are. It is by his spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When we look at this verse, I just want to bring you a message from the church inside of China saying that we've been there. We've done that. We know what you're going through. I often share a story. Uh, it's it's um, uh, a, more of a parable. It's not a real story, but it's, it's a pretty powerful one about <clears throat> a guy who is, that falls down into a hole. And the first person to walk by the hole to see the guy is a pastor from a church. And so the guy down in the hole screams up to the pastor and said, Pastor, can you help me? I'm down here in the hole. And the pastor says, yes, I can help you. I'm going to go back to my church. We'll hold a Friday night prayer meeting. And we will pray that God sends somebody to come and help you out of this hole. The next person to walk by is a humanitarian worker. The humanitarian worker walks by, and the guy down in the hole calls up to the humanitarian worker, Hey, can you help me out of this hole? And the humanitarian worker said, yes, I can. I will go back to my office. We will do a fundraiser. I'll put together a couple pie charts. We will then raise a committee that will come back, bring you out of the hole. We'll do a couple of photo shots for social media. We'll do a ribbon-cutting ceremony, how our organization helped you out of this hole. Another person walked by the hole. The guy down in the hole called up and said, Hey, can you help me out of this hole? And the guy that's above the hole jumps into the hole together with the guy. And the guy that's down in the hole says, great, <laughs> now we're both here. And the guy that jumped in said, yes, but I've been here before, and I know the way out. The Chinese have been where you are at, and they know the only way out is clinging to the cross. I want to thank you guys so much for allowing me to speak, and if we can cut the cameras, I'll share. 
Thank you for listening to Gateway Church's Sermon of the Week. Make sure to follow us on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And for more information, videos, sermons, or events, check out our website at igateway.org. Thank you and have a blessed week.